Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Matt. Hello, Andrew. For the last time. I know, I know. Bruce Bighead will fill the screen now. I'm fighting the tears. (laughs) (laughs) So Matt's heading off. He's heading off to a much larger law firm. So we're very excited by that for Matt. So we thought we'd stick him on the last show. Yeah, so, say goodbye. so when you yeah. give us a thumbs up, can you use two thumbs up? That's right. Yeah. There's a parting gesture. Not sure that's possible, but we'll find a way. <laughs> as long as it's not like rude. Like yeah, that's, that's nice, right. Nice. That's right. That's very true. We've got a bit on today. Yes. Labor Party keeps doing interesting stuff again. I think, Matt, this is probably one of the cases you're interested in, which is Gulliver's case, um, mm. which is, is really quite an interesting case about mm. the Catholic education. Yeah. About, okay, we go to investigate a person, mm. and mm. in this case... Was a teacher. Yep. Alleged to be playing the kids' earlobes. Yeah, something very unusual. Yeah. There's a particular mechanism around investigating which requires a child, a specialised child investigator. Mm. So there's information in relation to children that you can't disclose. That's right, through the CCYP. Yeah. yeah. So that issue was agitated through this. Mm. The person who was the teacher wanted more information mm. and then put it in, I think, in dispute. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, so it had a right under the disciplinary process in the enterprise agreement. Great place to have it. Too well, oh, my goodness. I mean, this is why we always say don't allow these things to get in because once they're in, they're so difficult and if they're not practical, you're stuck with the consequences of having to comply with it. So she had a right to ask for more information and in particular to be presented with the evidence relevant to the allegations that were being put in front of her, lodged a dispute under the dispute resolution provisions of the enterprise agreement in respect of that particular clause. Which had a status quo provision. Which had a status quo provision, <laughs> exactly. Doesn't get and, much worse, does it? Well, that's right. And, and the Fair Work Commission in its decision about that first aspect, about the application of the disciplinary process clause, said you should indicate to this employee what you can provide and provide as much as you can to the fullest extent, noting all of those restrictions. And that was made as a recommendation. And for people, when a commissioner makes a recommendation, Mm. it's not an injunction. No. But it does carry a specific weight. So the failure to follow a recommendation Mm. means you'll if you end up in the federal court, Mm. you're in deep shit. And that's exactly what happened to you. So and importantly, I think the employer here just failed to even tell the employee that they were that's right. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the court was sort of said, well, look, you could have at least even and the just Catholic told the Church wonder why it gets Yeah, the I know, I know. It's all that dismissing. That's, the, that's what's getting them in trouble. Yeah, and, and, and the court really said, you know, look, the commissioner even told you this is what you should do. You then did nothing in respect of the employee. You didn't even go back to the employee and say, hey, look, these are the reasons why we can't provide X, Y, and Z. They just did nothing and went straight to dismissal. And so it was found to be a breach of the enterprise agreement and resulted in compensation for the employee and a penalty. Yeah, it was about $25,000 in compensation. Then yeah. for each, each breach, yeah. it was a 25 grand penalty. Yeah, that's right. So it's pretty significant. So. Well, I think, actually, in your notes to me, because you wrote this. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> in, your, yeah. in your notes to me, you once again reminded me how people are a bit flippant about the breach of an enterprise agreement. Yes. And it's not yeah. something you can actually be flippant about. And the Fair Work no. Commission takes it, I'm sorry, the Federal Court takes a breach of an industrial instrument mm. very seriously. Yeah. And, and we've seen also examples too, Andrew, when it comes to those disciplinary processes in enterprise agreements where an employer has failed to follow them and terminated an employee in otherwise what would be examples of serious misconduct that warrant dismissal, it can render the dismissal overall 
harsh or just or unreasonable for failing to follow their yeah. own enterprise and that, process. You, know, like you just never put policies and procedures in enterprise. No, no, absolutely not. And this is a perfect example of why not to do it, Andrew, for sure. Well, let's go on to our federal Labor friends. Mm. So, you know, reformist mm. Labor government nationally and mm. pro- locally in, in Victoria particularly, mm. this is a national one, 221 Liberal government introduced Casual Clause 15A, yep. which adopted Rosada's Rosada, sorry, we've been, yes. we've, been to, we've been talking about the Rosada brothers. Yeah, Rosada, 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 Rosada. Godfather illusions. Yeah. Think, been going with thick this morning, which has the very strict black letter contractual obligation, mm. which is if the contract describes it accurately as a That's contract, right. you look at the time of creation, you mm. don't go to look at subsequent Exactly, conduct. exactly. Labor stood on a policy of saying that's not appropriate. You should look at the whole course of conduct yep. looking forwards. Yep. And they've also seemed to shorten the period of um, the mandatory review whether a casual contractor is now permanent. What's that now, Matt? Is that six months they moved to? Yeah, they want to move to six months instead of 12, which yeah. is, you know, once you hit the 12, out they got a, a working pattern that appears to be sort of something permanent and then they have to make the offer of casual conversion to permanent or accept yeah. the offer in return. They're now changing it, suggesting they change it, limited to six months and put the power back in the hands of the employee rather than the obligation on the employer which is an interesting aspect of it, which actually seems to go in the opposite direction of what they're doing, which is, you know, previously it was employer-driven, now they're actually taking it off the employer and putting it back in the hands of the employee. But it is a real proposal to go back to that pre-Rosado decision, pre-15A. And, and invest unions in the power to come in and say, look, we want to audit, we want to seize at three months, four months, mm. five months, six months. That's right. So it's a method of giving them a piece of leverage to try mm. and change and there's 5 million people on mm. casual contracts at the moment. That's right, It's yeah. part of getting rid of that and giving those people entitlement. Yeah. I guess what bothers me most about this, mm. Matt, is the continuing uncertainty in which commercial clients live. Yeah, that's right. And what the High Court did was sort of recognise there were two sorts of contracts. There are mm. those that exist in industrial instruments. Mm. They have a life of their own, and then mm. there are casual contracts and you look at the contract for those things. That's yeah. really what yeah. happened. Yep. That's sort of a very common sense approach to take mm. because that's our industrial landscape. What this is just trying to do is conflate both. Yes. Yeah. And it's trying to really remove casual contracting for any period of time greater than five or six months. That's, that's really right. the hard yeah. thing. Yeah, and, and that's why Labor keep they keep using this sort of statistic they say about the five million people on casual contracts, but the point they emphasise the most is, well, a third of those people do effectively full-time hours, although they're called casual employees. So that's their wrongdoing that they've identified that they're really emphasising here that they're trying to correct. But this method that they're going to engage in, depending on how we see if it comes out in the wash, we don't know exactly what it says in the bill. There's no bill at all at the moment. But the noise that they're making really is about, well, we're going to effectively codify what the law was at common law before workplace and risotto Work packet result, excuse me, and section fifteen A. Yeah. So it's a it's a come full circle, but with a whole another layer on top. Yeah, of it. and the actual administrative cost of actually redoing this every single time mm. costs. It's not the sharpest piece of work that I've seen. I don't think it's a mm. great idea. I thought we had clarity. I thought mm. it was good, but. Yeah, I'm not a politician. Yeah, no, I mean, well, lucky yeah, thing. lots of clients have spent that time and effort getting their contracts, casual contracts in line with 15A. Well, keeps us employed. Well, it does, that's fair, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not even casual. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but there's going to have to be some redoing again yeah. back, to the, back to the drafting board. 
with casual contracts again. Well, let's have a look at Milani, the, the next case. Mm. All right. Again, a really interesting case. Yes. A case yeah. where someone's conduct, not flash, no power with an industrial instrument. No. No power within a contract. Mm. So instead of dealing with the normal disciplinary mechanisms of warning, mm. there was a demotion. Yes. Yep. Can I just say when you demote someone, when you take away entitlements of their work, mm. you are effectively repudiating their contract. Yeah. It's such a misunderstood aspect, I find, Andrew, and certainly my experience, that a lot of employers have this assumption that there is this sort of ubiquitous power to demote, but it just doesn't exist unless you put it somewhere and no one can ever point to where it is. And so, it's not there. Well, that's right. <laughs> you know, no, no wisely read-up employee would agree to some sort of clause like that. In well, this, this, this uh, was a woman, I think. Yes. This woman yep. then went off and uh, got a lawyer and the lawyer properly accepted the repudiation. Yep, that's right. And then we went off to have a fight about it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, it did all the right things, really, from her lawyer's perspective mm. that, you know, that we have done and seen done many times before. So accepts the repudiation, accepts that as being at the initiative of the employer, bringing the employment contract to an end, uh, lodges the general protections claim, alleging all of the various different aspects of exercise of workplace rights and uh, 351 discrimination, etc. And the employer has the gall, I don't know who advised them, had the gall to try and argue that there was not a dismissal at their initiative and uh, made the jurisdictional objection on that basis and the commission would just said absolutely hard, no. Hard to understand. I understand the acceptance of remediation, mm. but it's very hard to understand that anyone really thinks when you take away what someone does for a job and give mm. them less without yeah. their consent and without mm. any industrial power to do mm. it, that it's anything other than a repudiation. Yeah. I mean, I think I, the, the thing I always try to explain to clients is you will have many commercial contracts for various different things, might be with suppliers, might be with customers, and what would you do if the person on the other side of that transaction decided, well, I'm going to pay you $15,000 less for your product today? Put yourself in that <laughs> shoe and then understand why you would be out there saying that's a breach we're bringing the, the agreement to an end. Employment's no different when it comes down to those contractual principles. No, no that's good. Next case is a New Zealand case, mm. an occupational health and safety case, and I think that often OHS managers feel relatively immune from prosecution. There has been, by the way, where an OHS manager is aware of a risk, engages in it, gives wrong-headed advice. Mm. They are, by their nature, breaching business's mm. responsibility, mm. and if they are told by someone it's clearly wrong, they're moving towards reckless endangerment. So they can be liable, mm. and a couple of OHS managers have. Mm -hmm. But this is a sort of funnier case in some it ways. It's not yeah. so funny, really. Mm. Young kid who worked there got overwhelmed by yeah. fumes, ended mm. up with a brain injury. Brain injury. Yeah. Same thing had only happened a week before. Mm. Without the injury. Yeah, yeah, without the injury. And the regulator didn't know about that, and there's a reason the regulator didn't know, and that's because the director and the OHS manager destroyed all records of it. That's right. So... There was a fine for the company in relation to the trauma that was done to the, the kid who did take on the fumes and mm. did get injured. Did get injured yeah. <laughs> but then the police investigated these giving of false statements and mm. found that that did occur. Mm. And in relation to sentencing, the OHS manager got nine months jail mm. for participating in what was probably directed by the director. Let's get rid of this and pretend right. it doesn't exist. It's right. Nina's put this case on for a really good reason, mm. and that is OHS managers and HR managers do have an independent duty to act honestly yeah. and lawfully. OHS managers, because it, their role is governed by statute, That's right. has a higher obligation that sits there. We regularly see HR managers getting into strife, breaching things like underpayment scams, 
describing people as contractors mm. when they knew they weren't. So HR managers know you're in the gun. But when you destroy a document, you're a clear breach of Crimes Act. There could have been a much more serious charge here, mm. which is deliberate breach, the destruction of documents mm. charge. Mm. Don't know if it exists in New Zealand. It no, certainly yeah. does in all criminal does. codes in Victoria. Yeah. And they probably would have got a bit more than the nine months. But so. interesting case, and just reminding you, everyone can be liable. It doesn't in safety, not just under safety law. That's right. Yeah, I think it's a great point, Andrew. Yeah, yeah well, I'm glad that's the only one yeah. I had. Matt. No, that's all right. <laughs> all I have to add. Now, 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 now let's move on to our main topic, which Matt and I are making up as we go. Along. That's fair, we are. Yeah, because we thought for old time's sake, we do it, we do it other times. That's right, yeah. We're going to do it one last time. We might as well do But it's completely weird, Andrew. So, yeah. So it really came because of the case called Rosenbaum that, recently came through, mm. which was an anti interim anti-bullying order that stopped performance management of an accountant where the um, owner's wife, who was a director, had carried out some conduct which was incredibly ordinary in relation yeah, oh, to Oh, I'll show it. I think that's okay. Yeah, yeah, so. we, 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 we had to drill down, but there was mm. absolutely no doubt that there was no way she was going to act reasonably with this woman. Mm. She understood the woman was legally represented. There was yep. workers' compensation on mm. foot. Mm-hmm. There was a million things that should have told her to stop doing what she was doing. Yeah. And then she said a letter with eight or 12 allegations. 12 allegations. Serious yeah. misconduct. Yeah. yeah. She'd been off work for two months on unpaid leave. She'd already put the application for the stop bullying order in. It started the processes around the work cover claim. Could you got up to speed so fast. Oh, yeah, yeah. You said five minutes very quickly. This is only 12 minutes before when we remembered this guy. Very, I remember the name. No, that was good. The name was good. But in, the, in, in that context, yeah. then sends the letter, avoid, circumventing the lawyers, which everyone knew were engaged by the employee, to not only try to do an investigation meeting, called it a disciplinary meeting, says you have to respond to these 12 things. And it just set the whole thing off on an absolutely worse direction, which is now you've got this interim order from the Fair Work Commission saying you cannot do these specific things. Very funny, can I just say, because mm. there's some observations from the Fair Work Commission mm. which are just lawfully not true. Mm. So, in mm. other words, when someone's engaged a lawyer, there is no obligation in respect to the employer to write to a lawyer. And I was sort of no, reading that and I yeah, thought, yeah, yeah, you've got to be carried away here. You just don't like it. Yeah. So don't yeah. read the judgment for law. That's, yeah, that's, that's a one a lot yeah. No, and that's a good point. And we get asked that quite often. Yeah. Um, I think when employees are in a disciplinary or a performance management process and then all of a sudden the letter from the lawyer comes through, there's always that distinction. If we're dealing with something about the legal claim, yes, you must engage with the lawyer. So if it's about a settlement offer, if it's about responding to something in that letter about particular allegations and so on, you've got to respond to the lawyer. But it doesn't mean that you don't have an ability to continue to engage with your employee in the course of their employment in a lawful and reasonable direction sense. So there's some conflating of that, I think, here. I think the issue was was that the direction in the letter was not really a lawful and reasonable direction given the context of the nature of it. It was just petrol with a match, really, wasn't it? Absolutely. And then, I mean, look, you know, I think it's an interesting part of this case, you know, the director's wife sort of, Gets on the stand as part of the um at the hearing. And he's belligerent and angry and bags the employee. Oh my goodness, couldn't present themselves in any worst way. So this is perhaps an example of sort of the worst case. It is the worst case. And as I was reading through and I was just giggling and I thought, you know, somebody would have said to her, when your defence is reasonable management action, at least you should act reasonably when you're being called. Yeah, that's right. In front of the person who's going to decide whether it is or not, Andrew. But that's it. Yeah. 
the reason we raise the case mm. is this. You often get red flag employees. They're people where you know the bomb's going to go off, you just mm. don't know when it's going to go That's off. That's right. You've allowed a lot of behaviour to go in the past. There's yep. a lot of water under the bridge in condemnation mm. and you decide you're going to take a stand. Yep. At that stage, you normally hypersensitise to the yes, person. Yes, that's right. So you see small things as great big things. Absolutely. It's no surprise to you, or it shouldn't be, that the person on the other side is equally highly sensitised to yes. you. Yes, yep. And that your actions and the manner in which you take actions before the formal performance management are all triggers for a successful workers' compensation mm, class. Exactly. So yeah. the person's perception of the way that you're managing them doesn't have to be reasonable. It mm. just has to be their perception. It's mm -hmm. a subjective test mm -hmm. and gives them a compensable claim. Not where you want to be when no. you want to get to the formal part of it where mm. it's an object test, objective test of mm. reasonable management action. So that's the first thing, Matt, and I want to talk to you about. Understand there is a period of time, the dance, Yes. you know, the... Yeah. before you actually get to the game. That's right. Which is purely subjective test. Exactly, exactly. And if you've left it too late to start properly addressing those things there, you're on a slippery slope to a bad outcome. Yeah. So that's the workers' comp part. Second, when the person gets scared, they're going to raise, at some stage, they don't feel safe. They're going to raise protected attributes about mm -hmm. their life, you know, that yep. they've got caring responsibilities, yep. that they've got a mental, Age, mental yeah, health race, issue. All those things. So they're going to start marking the ground like a naughty dog, just yeah. to remind you everyone where they've gone. Where and they say, yeah. Yeah. you touch me now mm. and I've already marked that crown. Mm. And then the moment you go to move, they say, well, now you're doing something which breaches my rights around this because mm. of this. You're doing mm -hmm. it because. And the truth is you are because mm. it's that thing that drove you crazy. Yeah, that's right. It was the final. It was the straw that broke the back because yeah. of that hypersensitivity. So we're going to do it through a quite complex problem and it's much more complex than it should be because it started three yeah, eighty. Right. <laughs> Matt's yeah. been giggling, just turning page after oh, page. Oh my goodness! But what I want you to remember is those comments of warning. We start yeah. from very easy to set up an anti-bullying order where that mm. hypersensitivity exists, yeah. where there's repetitive conduct yeah. which is unreasonable and makes mm. someone feel unsafe. Mm. If the person says they're unsafe, mm. then you need to stop the process, step back, provide the support, mm. and then build a formal process around yeah. it. And when someone puts their hand up and mm. says. I'm not feeling mentally safe mm. to do this. Mm. You actually need to start saying, well, how do I put a circle around that to make sure the person is safe yeah, and exactly. well yeah. or that you've made appropriate adjustments for that person? Mm. And remember the last part of this is, it's an important part, that a person's capacity to be managed as part of their inherent requirement of their job. Mm -hmm. So mm. when a person says, I can't be managed, mm. they can't be at work. That's right. So yeah. I'll just put all that together before yeah. we go into the case study. And it goes for a while. I'm told it's 11 slides. No, 13 slides. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's your last day. Give me a break. <laughs> but just try and remember everything because it is a fascinating and fun scenario yeah. and it's we're going to be plaintiff lawyers. We're going to come back at the mm. end of this mm. and all of us are going to be plaintiff lawyers. Off That's you go. right. Different, different hats on. All right. Erwin uh, was the executive assistant to the CEO of Good Traps Petway LTD, a plumbing supply business. Erwin had been the EA and previously PA to Gordon Gutter the original owner and more recently the CEO of GT after it was bought out by a group of venture capitalists. Gordon stayed on after the sale for 12 months as agreed in the sale agreement to bed down the purchase and hand over to the VC's appointed CEO, Nancy. Erwin started when the business was just three people in 1985. She was an old-fashioned secretary. She had perfect English, typed everything before PCs on an electric typewriter in triplicate with interleaving carbon paper. Yeah, Karen, that's carbon yeah, paper. Yeah, I knew it was carbon. I'm just that old enough, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Rarely resorting to a to fix the errors on the face sheet. Yes. <laughs> she was a rule complier and requirer. 
She was deeply loyal to Gordon, described herself as his work wife, arranging his day, making his coffee and buying his lunch. Her reward was a gruff nod of the head and a wage that was barely above the award for the first few years of her working life. She didn't mind. She had the work ethic and she knew behind closed doors he marvelled at her capacity to knock both him and his day into shape. The business grew from a small suburban business in Geelong West to a national business that competed with Reese. Even the executive team members before the VC buyer feared her. She was a fierce gatekeeper for Gordon. The VC had undertaken a global search to replace Gordon. Nancy was a senior exec at McKinsey and specialised in distribution networks development, exactly what GT needed to break into the Asian market. She consulted with Gordon for the first three months after the buyer, then went on payroll as CEO in waiting. It starts to get relevant now, by the way. That's right. Oh, that's good. It's all flavour. It's all flavour text, Andrew. Nancy worked closely with Gordon, was inclined to do her own documentation and diary work, and was brought into Gordon's competence, who really liked her, and she quickly rebuilt an executive team and virtual work groups not supported by admin. She worked lean. Although she was kind to Irwin, she shared no competences with her, didn't want coffees and lunch, just wanted to travel, accommodation and meetings arranged. On the 12th of April 2023, Nancy spoke to Irwin and explained they were adopting an internal social media platform for team communication. She wanted Irwin to help lead the change. Irwin bristled. All her life, she sat before Gordon at 7.30am and they mapped out the days ahead. She took shorthand and actioned his needs. She realised now that what Nancy would be doing would be directly socialised with work groups and she would make it work without the gatekeeper role she had enjoyed for 38 years. Irwin went to the training and built a rollout process that was very formal, required classroom-like training and signed off competency, a Gordon way of doing things. Nancy looked at her 12-page summary, emailed back four lines 15 minutes later saying, no need for classrooms, we will use an online process and copied in a link. Irwin was deflated, lost and hurt. She felt her accrued value and authority was lost. She went in to see Nancy to talk her through her concerns. Nancy said hi, excused herself and three minutes later sent a message with a contract to set up the online process and was gone. Irwin went to HR, complained Nancy had treated her unfairly. She didn't feel safe with Nancy who didn't consult around major changes with her and others and everyone felt very uncomfortable with her leadership style. HR spoke to Nancy, who was blown away. She didn't get it. She was lifting a load off Irwin, liked her, but felt she was a bit of a mother and dinosaur and wasn't sure how to use her. When she got back into the office, she asked Irwin to come in, explained she didn't mean to hurt but thought she was helping Irwin, but explained clearly that she needed a faster, more transparent process of managing her team and couldn't have Irwin managing access to her. Irwin broke down in tears, apologised that she had never cried in her life and said but her job was managing Nancy. Nancy said, I'm good at managing myself and told her to take a couple of weeks off on special paid leave, not from her accruals, and relax. Irwin went to a plaintiff lawyer. There you go. Mm. Now we become the plaintiff lawyer. I don't mm. know what sort of hat that needs to be put on. Oh, no, I'm actually... Imagine... a pointy one. Oh, I was just like a train conductor hat. I'm not sure why that came to mind, but I know what sort of hat you think about the pointing one. The D for plaintiff, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So how would the lawyer position a change in role? The policy from GT was two-week severance pay for each year of service and a week extra for employees of greater than 10 years for GT. That's a very common American cause, I might say, from mm. South America, mm. the southern part of, uh, of US. Ivan had worked for about 38 years and never taken long service leave. Nancy had no intention of making her redundant. Ivan was on 120000 annual salary and a defined bonus that had to be paid out of around 50000 annum. Put this question in a way mm. because 
There's no way it's redundancy. No, no. But, the, but, but the it language, has to be the end game, doesn't that's it? That's right, that's right. I mean, the thing is, is that a plaintiff lawyer is going to pick up on this and use the classic language that no longer needs the job to be performed by anyone because of changes in the operational environment of the business, changes in the operational environment of the business at the top end and in the specifics of what she was doing, changes in the role. Doesn't Pay consult. All of these Yeah, things, arbitrary changes in, in what she's doing. Mm. But one thing the plaintiff lawyer is not going to do mm. is say, well, now you've done it. Mm. I say it's repudiation. No. No, because no. the plaintiff lawyer now knows they've got to cause pain, mm. but the end result is getting this great outcome, yeah. which is the redundancy. That's right. That's right. And getting everything whacked them together. And the longer she's there, the longer mm. service leave will accrue at a higher and higher rate. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, she's never taken it. It's going to be a ridiculous <laughs> amount of weeks. Of so you can see the plaintiff's lawyer is not about resolving this now. No. No. Plaintiff lawyer's job is to cause pain at this mm. stage, okay? Mm. And all of us who've worked with the pointy-hatted plaintiff lawyers mm. know at this stage you don't get a letter of demand, you get a distressed and sick worker mm. who seems to be writing very well-written emails to yes, you about that's right. how they feel emotionally. That's right, that's right, so making that, the complaints. So yeah. now we've got the change in how she was treated, how it impacted her mental health. She felt lost, ambivalent, had no motivation. She was depressed. How would the lawyer use this and her forced special leave to Ireland's advantage? Mm. There's a couple of different questions about this. Mm. Remember, these people do feel like that. That's right. And yeah. they are depressed yes. and they're sad because their role in life has just been taken yeah, away. Right. And it's not can, made up. Yeah. It's not made up. And I wanted to say that. And the special paid leave is meant to be, look, curative, but in a way it's sort of punitive. It is. It does come across as punitive. It is. So she's raised the complaints. Made, about, and then she's yeah. been sent on leave. Sent so on. there we have our first general protections mm, issue absolutely. that's coming in. Mm. And that's, you know, at the end of this leave, she's going to say, look, I, I feel like I've been isolated. Mm. I feel that I've been pushed out of the business when mm. I raise a complaint. Mm -hmm. So you can see not a winning argument, but it's mm. a great start to it. Oh, argument. it's laying the foundations for, yeah. for sure. Let's yeah. go to the next slide. I'm going to identify subtle but repeated changes in how Nancy let her do a job that took away authority functions and eroded actions taken by her to align with Nancy's preference for online engagement not formalised process. She felt hurt and humiliated by the change and others had noticed and, and commented upon it. How would a lawyer use this course of conduct? Now, I just want you to remember, as you introduce change without proper consultation, mm. as it just happens by force of will, mm. there is a very reasonable perception from the person who's on the other side of that that they're being excluded from Yes, that's that they right. are something's changing towards them yep. and no one's told them about that's it. That's right, that's right. So you've got also the beginnings of a bullying argument. Not enough, I don't think. No, no, I don't think so. Not It's a you know, reasonable management action question. Is it repeated, unreasonable? It's a little bit sort of It's just there. on the edge. But if you stick it with the general protections issue, mm. if you stick mm. it with the mental health issue, absolutely, you've now got a pretty good, solid General protection yeah, claim coming. Agreed, agreed. So you're in a you've got a bit of le much more leverage, and mm. you've got two or three other witnesses who say, "Yeah, she's not being treated the same. Mm. No, she's not allowed to do the job she used to do." Mm -hmm. So you're getting the smell of repudiation. It's it's mm. becoming ugly, and yet Nancy's a good person. Yeah, yeah. She's just yeah. trying to get from point A to B without yeah. too much problem. She's bumped into a dinosaur. Mm. He's sinking around the swamps and won't come out. That's right. Yeah, the tar pits are there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to miss you, man. Hadn't <laughs> oh, thought of the targets. Uh, the day before Owen returned from leave, she re received a text from HR stating there was a meeting with Nancy at 9 a.m. the next day, that's the first day back, to discuss how they would work together going forward and it was a lawful and reasonable direction to attend. 
The lawyer sent her to a GP who said it was not safe for her to return to work and that she was suffering from depression. How would the lawyer use these circumstances to frustrate the inevitable change Nancy was seeing and best serve Owen as a client? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is the classic example is that that failure to communicate. Across that break, you know, if this is something that's legitimate, which, again, we can take from the factual scenario that Nancy does legitimately want to find a way forward, albeit she's got a particular way that she sees that happening, the dropping it on Irwin in circumstances where she knew that Irwin was so stressed as to require leave to feel better, it's just compounding it. So what had happened here is a plaintiff lawyer would tell her to take personal leave. Yep, yep. The smell of workers' comp would be running at you. Oh yeah. The premium Absolutely. impact of her on a business mm. of this size, we're talking five, six hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And then you get a letter of demand from the plaintiff lawyer in respect to the GP. Yep. And the yep. settlement you'd be looking at is two fifty to three hundred thousand oh, dollars. This one for sure. And yeah. the payout. Absolutely. Yeah. So and you wouldn't end up doing the two round. you'd do about eighty to hundred in general damages as a payment, and then you'd pay out. Yep. Now just imagine if you did it the right way. Mm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Nothing at all. And a useful yep. woman who redirected and given the right strength mm. would want to stay. And that's right. And, and add value, most likely, yeah. as well. So, look, that's a story we both sort of wanted to tell. It was yeah. our last day story for Matt. Yeah, Matt, there you go. Matt Crayley. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. It's a bit hard. I like Tarpit, yeah. Okay, thumbs up, guys. See you later and say goodbye to Matt on Twitter.